so that's generator motivation. And we've just had teachings on Tsongkhapa's illumination of the thought, where he explains some of the verses in Chandakirti's um, Manjumikavatara. And at the beginning are verses about great compassion. I find those uh, verses very, very um, meaningful to meditate on. Because when we do, we understand very well the plight of sentient beings in samsara. And the more we understand their plight, which is our own plight, the more naturally compassion arises. And for me especially, when I see how sentient beings circle in samsara, one lifetime to the next, again and again, and apply that to the people that I see around me and that I read about, and then think that these people have no idea about what samsara is. They have no idea what their situation is. For them, the just the appearance of this life is so strong that the questions of how did I get here and who am I and what's the meaning of my life, none of these occur to the people. And similarly, they don't really understand why their lives are filled with difficulties and frustrations. And yet, in their effort to be happy and avoid suffering, they keep creating the causes for more and more and more difficulties. And just You know, the fact of not having any clue about their situation, about what it is, how to remedy it, the need to remedy it. That I find um, extremely painful to think about because it means that sentient beings, there's, you know, there's nothing they can do in their lives if they can't understand that. I find that that brings compassion. So reflect on that a minute. Let your compassion arise and then think of what you can do to help the situation and becoming a fully awakened Buddhist so that you can manifest in ways that they need in order to lead them to full awakening.
So one of the important things that sentient beings need to know about if they're going to do anything with their situation of being in samsara, if they are going to have any ability to uh, bring about happiness, one of the most important things they need to know is about karma and to have a belief in karma and to practice it in their daily lives, even though sometimes practicing it is difficult. Because sometimes in order to avoid negativities, we have to refrain from doing what we want or doing what our attachment wants, put it that way. And we don't like to avoid doing what our attachment wants. We want to do what our attachment wants. And when we stop and sometimes realize, oh, I'm about to do this, and my motivation is attachment or resentment or jealousy or whatever it is, and I think this is going to bring me happiness and it's going to bring me suffering in the long term, but I want to do it anyway because this person did this and that and I want to be happy and acting this way is going to make me happy. Yeah? And then we blame the Dharma. Why is Dharma so hard? I thought it was going to lead me to liberation but instead I can't do this and I can't do that and I have to do this and I have to do that. This is like a gulag. So, you know, when when we look at, I mean, our own mind and then things, you know, people who don't even know anything about karma, then, you know, trying to tell them to refrain from certain things, it's it's worse than pulling teeth, yeah? And, And yet, that's the first step in, in alleviating pain and creating the causes for happiness. And it's difficult to do. Do you find it difficult to do in your life? You know, there's something right there and it's like, well, I have a precept that says not to do this, but I'll do it anyway and then I'll just confess it. And they never call me out when I confess things. They just nod their head. So it's okay. It won't be too painful. No? And then we act as if cause and effect doesn't exist. It's difficult. But, as we start to have faith in cause and effect and start to have faith in karma and its effects and begin to orient how we live our life according to that way, then we find that our life is more tranquil and uh, our mind is clearer. We don't feel... Uh, we have, Our integrity is intact. Yeah? So we don't feel so uh, conflicted within ourselves or bad about what we've done. Hmm. Okay, so we were going through this whole discussion for several pages here. 
about the, um, oh, here it is, definite and indefinite karma, okay? So when it says definite and indefinite, it doesn't mean definite to ripen and indefinite like it's going to go bye-bye and never ripen. It means definite to bring all four results or indefinite to bring all four results, okay? So we talked about um, karma that was done but not accumulated, meaning that we did an action, that's the done part, verbally or physically, but it wasn't accumulated in the sense that we didn't have a strong motivation um, or any motivation at all to do it. And then we talked about karma done, and accumulated, okay, so that's the karma that's going to bring all four results, yeah, because we had a motive, an intention and we acted it out. Okay, then there's karma that is not done but accumulated, which is, for example, uh, thinking and developing an intention to do a certain thing, and then not doing it. Okay, so this comes in terms of virtue and virtue, you know, and not in virtue. So, uh, you know, we may intend to, um, you know, do a retreat and then decide to go to the beach instead, or we may intend to make an offering and then decide to have a hot fudge Sunday instead. So it's karma that is not done, but it was accumulated because we had that motivation. And then karma that is neither done nor accumulated, which is having no attention to do something and and not doing anything. And the example is like almost hitting another vehicle. Uh, When you're on the highway, you had no intention to hit them and you didn't hit them. Okay, so that is that going to bring like not very much of a result. Okay, so remember when it says determined or undetermined, it's not talking about fate or predetermination. And karma is not cast in concrete. There's a lot of ways that we can... uh, work with the karma. I mean, especially in terms of purifying uh, destructive actions and, you know, that cuts their force and rejoicing at virtuous actions and dedicating them. Okay, so there's ways to do that. Also, we can influence when karma ripens sometimes by the situations we put ourselves in, when we put ourselves in dangerous situations, we're making it much easier for the seeds of destructive karma to bear their fruit, okay, than when we put ourselves in safe situations, karmically safe situations. Yeah, physically safe situations and karmically safe situations are not the same, okay? 
Okay. So then the next, uh, so I have to read the very uh, last part of uh, this bit about definite and indefinite karma. So although actions with all four branches complete are definite karmas, they may not be strong enough to propel a rebirth. For example, the motivation is very weak or the action is insignificant. Okay, Karma that is not done, so that's reflecting on karma that's both done and accumulated. Then karma that is not done but accumulated is, for example, plotting for a long time to rob someone and then deciding against it. Good decision. Or dreaming of helping others and rejoicing when we wake up. Okay. And then karma that is neither done nor accumulated is having no intention to cause an accident, but almost hitting another vehicle when driving. So definite actions are certain to bring results unless we apply counterforces to them. But definite does not mean that events are predetermined or fated, and therefore there is no purpose exerting energy to oppose them. Very far from that. Because while the cause is there, we can still do something to encourage the cause to ripen or prevent the cause from ripen, or make the result bigger or make the right result smaller. What we can't do is change a virtuous action into a non-virtuous one, okay, or change a non-virtuous one into a virtuous one, because once the action is completed, that ethical dimension is, is there. Purifying destructive karmas by means of the four opponent powers is effective in lessening or stopping the result. Okay, and like I said, rejoicing and dedicating our ways to increase the results of virtue. Okay, then we're on page 285, when karma ripens. In term, and this, this section is quite interesting. It's... Um, it has from the Sanskrit tradition and from the Pali tradition, and there's some similarities and there's some differences. So uh, we can think about it a bit. In terms of when karma ripens, definite karma may bear results in this life first. You know, that's one alternative. In the very next life, or third, in lives subsequent to that very next life. Okay, so karma that is the second of the 12 links, yeah, which means you have all four um, branches complete and it's strong enough to throw a rebirth. Okay, so that karma will ripen in the next life or um, the one after that. Okay, um, it doesn't mean it's definite to, to ripe then, it means, you know, most likely. It will, okay? Or, or maybe it's better to say the kind of karmas that ripen in the next life are the ones that are um, the, the second branch of the 12 things. Actions that ripen in this life are those that are very strong owing to the special qualities of the field. For example, holy beings 
or the strength of our intention. Okay, so karma that will ripen this life, you know, is karma that is particularly strong because either um, we did it in relationship to somebody who was a strong uh, object of creating karma with, so holy beings, the sick, the poor, teachers, um, parents, people like that. So that kind of karma um, can more easily ripen in this lifetime. Or if we, have, if we did an action with a specially strong intention, then that can also ripen in this t- lifetime. Okay? Um, so the levels of yogic deeds list four pairs of actions that may ripen in the same life as they are created. So this is interesting. And think about it and think uh, of actions you've done or... Uh, have witnessed other people do or read about them doing that fit into these. Okay, so these are things that will uh, ripen in this life. Okay, more like most likely to ripen in this life. Okay, so non-virtuous actions done with strong attachment to your body. Okay, so you're afraid somebody's going to hurt hurt your body. So you attack them and you kill them before they can do that. So all these uh, things we're reading about with police, um, you know, murdering different people or also one citizen murdering the another, very often it's done out of fear and fear often comes from attachment to our body, you know. We're afraid of the body getting harmed, and so we uh, strike before we can be struck. Okay? And virtuous actions done with strong disinterest in our body. So here I think of that man when, um, right before Obama was elected, and somebody had fallen into the uh, subway tracks in New York City, and he just jumped in and laid on top of that person, and the subway train went right over him, and they both lived. And he did that with no attachment to his body. You know, so that's the kind of very strong virtue. Okay. Um, Then the second pair is non-virtuous actions done with great malice towards others. Okay, so you have a political opponent and you are fearful or angry or jealous and so you blast them, you know, you lie and ruin their reputation, you uh, divide them from people they're close to, you insult them, Um, you know, in front of 3,000 worlds. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you do when somebody talks bad words about you, you know, throughout the 3,000 worlds? Yeah, speak of their good qualities. Okay, the last thing we want to do. But, you know, if we react with malice then we are just perpetuating the whole thing in our mind. Okay? 
And then, so that's likely to arise in, in, or ripen in this life. And virtuous actions done with heartfelt compassion for others. So what are some examples of that? Yeah. Okay, so Buddhist Global Relief. Um, many of the charities, if people are done doing them with, you know, a very compassionate intention. Youth emergency services. Yeah. Yeah, the front line taking care of COVID patients. Okay. Then the third pair, likely to ripen in this life, non-virtuous actions done with deep malice and lack of respect for the three jewels or our spiritual mentors. Okay, so you get, um, you know, completely furious at your teacher and you you mouth off or... Um, yeah, you speak badly, you get mad at, at the Dharma. When you have problems, people get mad at the Dharma. Sometimes uh, when one part, partner is interested in the Dharma, the other partner gets jealous of the Dharma and speaks very badly about the Dharma. Okay, so that, that kind of thing is quite strong. And also strong is virtuous actions done with deep confidence and regard for the three jewels in our spiritual mentors. Okay, so when we make offerings, we offer service, um, you know, we just sitting in our meditation feeling, you know, deep confidence and um, making our mind ripe for the teachings and listening to teachings uh, earnestly with attention instead of like, when's this going to be over anyway? Um, that kind of attitude, okay? But really, um, yeah, having faith and confidence that kind of karma will ripen in this life. Okay, then the fourth pair, non-virtuous actions done with intense animosity towards those who have been kind to us. Okay, so you see that, um, uh, well, we'll go through all these four. So, uh, you know, your parents, your teachers, people who are trying to help us, and we get really mad at them. Yeah, people who try and give us good advice, who care about us when we're going down a slippery slope, and like, get off my back and mind your own business and stop bossing me around. And Okay, so, you know, or people who have taken care of us, you know, like our parents or whoever took care of us when we were little, having very intense animosity. Yeah, I think some of, most of us probably have some teenage karma to purify here. Um, you know, and especially if we continue on afterwards holding a grudge against our parents or a grudge against somebody who's been kind to us. Okay. And then, yeah, it says been kind to us, such as parents and teachers. And then also virtuous actions done with an intense wish to repay their kindness. So when we see people's kindness and we 
we want to repay it. Are there people in your life that kind of every time you see them, what comes to your mind is how kind they've been to you? Yeah. I know for me that um, one person that that, uh, I feel very strongly that with, and many people have difficulties with this person, so it's quite interesting. It's somebody that some people have difficulties with. But anyway, when I lived in Singapore, I was—I lived in, I don't know, five or six different places within a year and a half. Um, the center was in no, well, they didn't even have a place themselves for many of the months I was there. And there was one woman um, who was leading the center at that time. And she had a, a one-bedroom, very small apartment with one bedroom. And I stayed with her for a number of months. She gave me the bedroom, and she slept on the sofa for months. And she worked every day, you know. So, um, you know, and now she's quite old, and, you know, her mind is a bit fearful and so on. But uh, every time I see her, the first thing I think of is how kind she was, you know, to to take me in when, yeah. So anyway, um, it's nice when there's people like that in your life, yeah, who whenever you see them, the thought of, um, wow, they helped me comes to mind. Okay, so you'll see with all those four pairs, they all have to do with having a strong, either strong attachment or strong animosity and hostility, or um, uh, in terms of your motivation, a strong virtuous motivation of compassion or, um, you know, confidence or faith or something like that. And they all have to do with different objects. The first pair, in, in terms of our relationship with our body, the second, um, in terms of relationships with other people. Third, uh, with the three jewels. And fourth, with people who have been kind to us. Yeah. So it's kind of reminding us of specific people to, to be aware of and uh, specific attitudes also to be careful with. <clears throat> In general, the results of heavy constructive and destructive karmas may be experienced in the same life in which they were created, whereas karmas that are slightly less heavy are likely to be experienced in the very next life. Karmas that are not as heavy as those are experienced in lives after that. So that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, they have the stuff that's heaviest, It's strong in your mind, so easy for it to ripen. The Pali Abhidharma also discusses karma that ripens in this life, in the next life, and in life subsequent to that. And it adds another option, karma that becomes defunct. Okay, now, defunct does not mean, we would like it to mean literally defunct. But it doesn't quite mean that. It just means it doesn't ripen at that time, although it could have. Okay. 
So the pal, uh, okay. So karma that ripens in this life brings its result in the same life in which it was created. So that's the same as the Sanskrit tradition. If such karma fails to encounter cooperative conditions for its ripening, it becomes defunct and does not ripen at all. Okay, so this, it, they're not, it didn't describe here like what makes a karma uh, ripen, you know, the qualities of a karma that will ripen in this life. Yeah, it doesn't, except, well, they usually say it's the karma, it's, we'll come to that, that isn't so strong. So they do it in the opposite order. Okay. Yeah, because they set it up here. Uh, okay, no, they didn't. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so, and here it's talking about for in order to ripen, it needs certain cooperative conditions, but those cooperative d- conditions for it to ripen in that life aren't there, so it doesn't ri- ripen. Okay, I don't think it means that it never ripens at all. Because if it did, then we would, you know, be shedding a lot of karma without it ripening. <laughs> okay, and you'll, you'll see it. It t- discusses this a bit later. Karma that ripens in the very next rebirth must produce its result in the next life. If it does not meet the conditions to ripen, then it becomes defunct. Okay, so, so far it hasn't really described what makes a karma one or the other of these. Okay. Then the third, karma that ripens in subsequent lives, is karma that ripens whenever suitable conditions come together in any life subsequent to the next one. Okay. And I think that goes for the first two karmas. If they don't ripen in the, the, this life or the next life, then whenever the conditions come. Okay? The karma becomes defunct only with the... See? The karma de- becomes defunct only with the final attainment of... with the attainment of final uh, nirvana when an arhat passes away. Okay, so there it's talking about karma that uh, can create, that uh, can propel another lifetime, and that becomes defunct when an arhat passes away. Um, Because, according to uh, some Pali interpretations, this has to do with the thing of nirvana with remainder and without, so and would, and there's two different ways to see that. So the way, the common way, we now know what common way means. All the people accept it. Okay, um, is that karma, um, nirvana with remainder, is an arhat attaining nirvana in that life. Okay, he still or she has the the remainder of a body that is polluted because in their last life they were born due to polluted karma. They attained awakening, you know, an arhat's awakening, or they would say a shavaka awakening, a solitary realizer awakening in that life. And therefore, that karma 
when they passed away would be defunct because there is nothing to help it ripen. And when they pass away, that's called nirvana without remainder because they no longer have the remainder of the polluted body. Okay. Okay. So contrary to the description in the Sanskrit uh, tradition, the Pali Abhidharma says that in order of his strength, karma that ripens in subsequent lives is the strongest, followed by karma that ripens in the next life, with karma that ripens in this life being the weakest. Yeah? So. And then the category of defunct karma, well, it just it is in the category. It's not a specific class of karma, but that term describes karma that could have ripened, but does not, owing to a lack of appropriate conditions. So that happens, I think, all the you know all the time, because uh, you know there's we have so many karmic seeds in our mind, and there's probably a variety of them that could ripen at any given moment but it depends on what conditions are there. Just like if you uh, have a garden, you know, you may have you plant your daisy seeds, but, you know, if there's no conditions, they're not going to ripen, or maybe you have water and fertilizer, but it's still cold, or maybe you have the heat and the water, but you don't have the fertilizer. So there's, you know, so it's not going to ripen then. Uh, you know, so it's like, these are all the things where we see that how karma ripens is not concrete. It depends on so many conditions. Just like a seed ripening depends on so many conditions. Okay. For example, karmic seeds remaining on the mind streams of arhats become defunct when they die and enter nirvana without remainder. I think that those are the karmic seeds that can propel a rebirth. Um, arhats, according to the you know the Pali tradition, they still have uh, other kind of karmic seeds because you know they can experience pain and they can you know have accidents and things like that. So how is the idea of defunct karma reconciled? with the Buddha's explanation that the results of our actions will definitely be experienced. So here's another citation from the Buddha. I think the word defunct is a little bit misleading. Yeah. Anyway, here's what the Buddha said. I declare monastics that actions willed, so intended, performed and accumulated will not become extinct as long as their results have not been experienced, be it in this life, in the next life, or in subsequent future lives. As long as these results of actions will, performed, and accumulated have not been experienced, there will be no making an end to suffering, I declare. Okay, so... Um, you know, these karmas are going to be there, and until we uh, get rid of, you know, the root of samsara, 
they will ripen. So this statement applies to karmas that are capable of yielding results within the certainty that destructive actions will produce misery, never happiness, and constructive actions will lead to happiness, never misery, there is some flexibility as to how, when, and if a karma ripens. Just as an undamaged, uh, just as undamaged seeds that have the capability to grow will sprout when planted in fertile soil with sufficient water and sunshine or warmth, so too will seeds of constructive and destructive karmas bring their results when planted in the mind stream of an ordinary being when the appropriate conditions come about. Nevertheless, as a conditioned phenomena, the ripening of of karma can be affected by other forces. Okay, so if karma were inherently existent, you know, one of the meanings of inherent existence is something that is independent of all other factors. Okay, so if karma, once you created it, it's there, it's going to ripen in a certain way, it's predetermined, and nothing else can affect it, that's, then you're thinking that the, that karma is inherently existent. Okay, if it were inherently existent, it could not ripen at all, because in order to ripen, it needs the cooperative conditions. Okay, once it's influenced by cooperative conditions, then it is no longer something that is independent of all other factors. Okay, so this is one of the reasonings we use uh, to uh, negate inherent existence. Yeah, is is that if things existed uh, inherently, they would have to be permanent, unchangeable, and uh, could never be affected by anything. Okay. Nevertheless, okay, as a, con- a conditioned phenomena, the ripening of karma can be affected by other forces. If this were not the case, and karmic seeds could never be modified, we, would, we could never reach the end of dukkha because the karma to be experienced would be endless. And there, you know, you would just, if you couldn't change this and purify it, then there's just so much karma that once one ripened, another and another and another, you're still creating so much more and you still have a huge backlog. Okay? So it's kind of like working at a job and you think you're going to get off at 5 o'clock and then, you know, two weeks more work comes. And then the next day you think you're going to get off at five and another two weeks of work comes. So kind of like that. Okay, so the Buddha elaborates another uh, quotation. However, once greed, hatred, and confusion have vanished, that action is thus abandoned, cut off at the root, made barren like a palm palm tree stump, obliterated, so that it is no more subject to arise in the future. So greed, hatred, and confusion vanishing, I think, would apply to attaining nirvana. 
It is like seeds that are undamaged, not rotten, unspoiled by wind and sun, capable of sprouting and well embedded. If a person were to burn them in fire and reduce them to ashes, then winnow the ashes in a strong wind or let them be carried away by a swiftly flowing stream. Those seeds would be radically destroyed, fully eliminated, made unable to sprout, and would not be liable to rise in the future. So, in other words, purification practice works. When ordinary beings later become arhats, their polluted karma, be it virtuous or non-virtuous, may still ripen as pleasant or unpleasant experiences when they are alive. When they pass away and attain of nirvana without remainder, all polluted karma becomes defunct. And there it refers to all polluted karma becomes defunct because... Uh, according to this theory of what happens at the time uh, an arhat attains uh, nirvana without remainder, the consciousness ceases, okay? The, or the continuum of the consciousness ceases. So, of course, if that ceases, there's no way, you know, it could experience pleasure or pain, and so there's no way for karma to ripen. Other circumstances... So this is all according to the uh, Pali tradition. Other circumstances that also render karma defunct, oh, can also render karma defunct. The book of analysis, uh, I think that's one of the Abhidharma texts, the seven Abhidharma in the um, Pali tradition, explains that there are certain cases in which a constructive or destructive karma will not bring a result. Four factors may prevent this. Okay, so first factor is the realm of rebirth. So a destructive karma, you know, is due to ripen in the next existence as an unfortunate rebirth. That doesn't mean it's in concrete to ripen as that. It is due to the situation now, Okay, that destructive karma is due to ripen in the next rebirth as an uh, unfortunate, next existence as an unfortunate rebirth. That's just the situation right now. Okay, but the person creates a powerful constructive karma that causes her next life to be in a fortunate rebirth. So blocked from ripening, that destructive karma, quote, quote, dries up and does not ripen, okay? So I think it means it it doesn't ripen in that kind of, that particular lifetime. It will probably ripen at some other time. But due to that um, particular um, birth where somebody's in, for example, if you have a... uh, you created a negative karma to, uh, you know, experience some kind of gross physical suffering, yeah? And that karma's strong, and, you know, or it's, and it looks like it's heading towards ripening in your next life, 
But in the meantime, uh, you sit down and you meditate and you attain serenity and then you uh, even develop the concentration of, uh, you know, the second dhyana, yeah. then that karma to experience that gross suffering is, can't ripen in that rebirth because of the realm you were born into. Okay. Or let's say somebody created uh, a very virtuous karma that was due to kind of ripen in the next rebirth, but then that person, you know, goes out and does some horrible negative action and gets reborn in the hell realm, and that virtuous karma cannot ripen in the hell realm. Okay? So like that. The realm of uh, where somebody is born inhibits that karma from ripening. Okay, second factor that uh, can... um, can make uh, a constructive or or destructive karma not bring a result. So a person's physical body or possessions. So a constructive karma in the person's mind stream has the tendency to ripen in a particular rebirth, but, you know, okay, well, let's read the rest of it. But the person has has a weak body or lacks the requisites to sustain his life. The situation of his body and possessions inhibits the constructive karma from ripening. Okay, so somebody has constructive karma to be very wealthy in their next life, okay? But when they take rebirth, there's some other karma involved that makes them very sickly, and so they don't have a very long life, and so that virtuous karma to receive wealth has no opportunity to ripen because of the circumstance of the the person's physical body. Okay? Then the time. This is the third one. A constructive karma has the tendency to ripen in a certain rebirth, but the person is born in a time of war, drought, or economic depression. Since the cooperative conditions for the ripening of this constructive karma are not present at that time, the karma loses its effectiveness and does not ripen. Okay, so there's a positive karma, it you know that's going to bring happy results, but then due to some other karma ripening, which isn't mentioned in here, you know, um, they're born in in a really horrific you know, social situation that makes it, you know, the times that they're living in makes virtuous car- that virtuous karma difficult to ripen. Okay? So, for example, there may be people, and I'm sure there are, who have virtuous karma that could, you know, ripen in a lot of happiness, but then they're born uh, and they're living through the COVID pandemic. So that karma to... Uh, you know, have a, have wealth or have a good reputation in their in their work, you know, or have a happy family life. That karma has no uh, opportunity to ripen because of the time period that they're living in. Okay, then the fourth is someone may have a destructive karma on her mind stream 
that is due to ripen in premature death, but she makes wise choices, behaves ethically, puts herself in good situation, and cultivates friendships with ethical people. As a result, the destructive karma lacks the conducive circumstances to ripen. However, if she drinks and drives, she provides ample opportunity for that destructive karma to ripen. Although we do not have much control over the first three factors, by living wisely here and now, we can influence which karmic seeds in our mind streams will ripen. So I was thinking here of the short video clip that Venerable uh, Jigme sent around yesterday from Yes, if, if you watched it. And the, that woman's uh, story at the end, you know, when she's holding her baby. So she had some, you know, really tough karma ripen early in her life. And those circumstances, you know, being a drug addict and living on the street and everything, that set up the, you know, the situation for more negative karma to ripen. But once, you know, her mind changed, it didn't really say what made specific what made her mind change, except the help of all the people. So, you know, the fact that people showed up to help her and uh, they had confidence in her and that helped her turn her whole life around. And then that virtuous karma had now had a chance to ripen. And so let's hope she continues to have a good family like it appears that she has now. Yeah. So that, you know, came about because of her personal effort. Yeah. Um, on page 285, under right under when karma ripens, mm -hmm. it says karma, that is the second of the 12 links, will ripen in the next life or one after that. Is there other kinds of karma than the second link? Uh, what I, I think that sentence means is the kind of karma that will ripen in this life. Uh, what does it say? In this life or the next this karma that is the second of the 12 of links, links will ripen in the next life or one after that. Yeah. So that that karma has all the, the you know, parts uh, done. And so that karma is sitting there, you know, ready to throw in a new rebirth. And so it's very likely to ripen in the next life or in the life after that. Um. What about the karma that ripens in this life? Is how is that related? Well, to, because this karma, this karma, has the power to throw a rebirth mm -hmm. in this life. Um, it's difficult. It can't. The the karma that through this life has already ripened. The the karma that that ripened to throw this rebirth was a karma created before this life. So. If in this life you create uh, a, a karma that has the power to throw rebirth, it has to be a rebirth in the future because your present life is already there. So karma that's the second of the 12 links is always a throwing karma? It's never a karma that ripens in this life? Yeah, it's always going to be a propelling karma. Propelling. Yeah. but And it can have all four results. But they usually say for the first result is the 
the, pro uh, the rebirth that it propels. Yeah, but I'm sure there's exceptions. <laughs> you know, because there's different factors influence different things and other different things and, you know. Okay, so how, how karma functions. So with respect to how karma functions, the Pali Abhidharma describes four types. Productive, supportive, obstructive, and supplanting karmas. Okay, this is interesting. I've never heard of it in the, in the Sanskrit tradition, but it could very well be in one of the Abhidharma texts. You know, it's just not that they, maybe they don't teach that widely in Lamrim. But anyway, productive karmas are the virtues, uh, virtuous or non-virtuous intentions that produce the aggregates of a rebirth. This includes the body and mind at the first moment of a new life, as well as mental states and aspects of the body, such as sense faculties that develop later on. Okay, so exactly, how, you know, the, the, usually they describe the propelling karma as just deciding uh, the rebirth that you get, which realm you're born into. But of course, that means your five aggregates, you know, which kind, five aggregates of a human being, of a, a worldly God, whatever it is, okay? Um, so it says the body and mind at the first moment of the news life, as well as mental states and aspects of the body senses, such as the sense faculties that develop later on. So remember in Pramnavartika, we talk about the sense faculties, you know, this wonderful argument about how they're form, subtle form, but they can, the, uh, either they go or the potency for them goes from one life to the next life. Yeah, so that, I think that's what it's talking about. I personally have a difficult time grokking that, but uh, I'll leave it open and perhaps someday I will understand sense faculties better. Yeah, maybe I have too much of a scientific orientation to, <laughs> to think about, you know, that. Anyway, then supportive, so that was productive karma. Supportive karma does not produce its own result, but supports the production or duration of the result of another karma by creating conducive circumstances for the other karma to ripen. I think that also means that that karma creates its own result, which is to support the ripening of another karma. But, you know, it's described how the words are used. A little bit different here. So after a virtuous karma results in our having a fortunate rebirth, supporting karma could extend our lifespan, prolong a disease called by a non-virtuous uh, karma, or lengthen the time that we experience happiness or misery. Okay, so it affects the ripening of another karma, making it more intense, making it last longer or shorter, or something like this. So it's kind of a, 
a karma that ripens as a, a cooperative condition to the ripening of another karma. Okay. Then the third is the obstructive karma. Also does not produce its own result, but interferes with the ripening of another karma, making its result weak or shorter in duration. So if we had created the constructive karma to receive an inheritance, obstructive karma would prevent us from claiming it. Okay, if we had created the destructive karma to have a severe illness, obstructive karma could mitigate the effect so that we have a mild stomachache instead. Okay? So again, obstructive karma ripens uh, as a cooperative condition that can interfere with another karma ripening. Then supplanting karma is virtuous or non-virtuous karma that cuts off the ripening of a weaker karma and ripens in its place. So it shoves somebody out of line and says, I'm cutting in front of you. Okay? So unlike obstructive karma, supplanting karma does not simply interfere with the ripening of another karma, but actually ripens instead of it. Okay? A destructive karma may be about to ripen at the time of death, but through a change of circumstances, a stronger supplanting constructive karma ripens instead, which is why it's good when a, a person is dying that we have, you know, we create a, uh, a very peaceful situation. We remind them of their virtue. We remind them of the teachings and so on. A particular karma may perform any of these four functions at different times. So it isn't that something, some karma is just one or the other of these four, but it can ripen as any of these at different times. And you can see, like with the supportive and, and obstructive karma, you know, maybe something's set to ripen and as another karma ripens to prevent this one, from ripening, and it also supports another karma for, to ripen. So something like that. So then the benefits of contemplating karma and its effects. Contemplating karma and its effects helps us to see ourselves, our experiences, and our lives as dependent on a variety of factors. They arise and cease due to causes and conditions. So this is very, very important to meditate on. Okay? Because if we can understand this, then it completely alters how our feeling when we meditate on precious human life, death and rebirth, um, death and impermanence. Yeah? Uh, you know, the sufferings uh, of samsara, you know, what dukkha is, the more we can understand just the, the um, causal dependence, it can really uh, change how we see things in our life. Yeah, because we, we realize that, you know, things depend on many causes and conditions. 
and we don't have control over them. And so, you know, what happens, happens, and you can get aggravated about it, or you can just go with it. Or you can try and change things, and maybe you're successful, and maybe you just have to, you know, accept what is ripening, because you can't control. Okay? This is kind of like the situation of, am I going to have surgery Monday or not? You know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I wish I would know, because it would certainly change my mental state, but she said, if you don't hear from me, then it's on. So that means that if she found that I was able to track down the COVID, she's not going to call me, but I'm not going to know she's not going to call me until I arrive at the hospital and check that she is not going to call me and find out there that, you know, she wasn't able to track down the COVID result. What to do? You know, what to do? When the, the, the yesterday there were two babies in there, yeah, and it was <laughs> here. You really see how children are not born blank slates. One baby is in there. You could tell exactly when the needle hit the baby. <laughs> ah, ah, shrieking this child. The second baby was a little bit older. He had a lot of people kind of, you know, around him, making eye contact and playing with him. He didn't say peep when the blood test was being taken. Not one peep. So things occur due to causes and conditions, you know, and you, you have two babies who respond two different ways. Yeah, I was, they were doing my, my blood at the same time when they were doing that baby. So I was talking with, the, you know, the woman who was taking my blood, and I said, I won't shriek, you know, when you do it. Because <laughs> they were just getting ready to do the baby. So we were all prepared to hear. <laughs> and I thought, you know, she's going to be just putting the needle in, and here, and she's going to go, well, you know. <laughs> But that didn't happen. <laughs> it's a pretty profound understanding of to realize that our entire life is basically trying to respond to the karma that ripens in a way that we can create maybe some virtue, yeah. if anything, neutral. Yeah. That that's that's what that's, our whole life of practice is about. Yep. Yep. It's not about how can I grab onto my happiness? How can I get my way? How can I make the world conform to what I want it to be? It's how can I create virtuous karma, whatever is, you know, karma from the past ripens in that moment. That's it. Yeah. So if we, if we, you know, change our mind and see, you know, that's what we're doing, then we become so much more relaxed. Yeah. So I'm just going to be like happy and relaxed. <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll slice my leg open Monday.
Okay. Uh, so where were we here? So we did supplanting karma. Okay, the benefits of contemplating karma. Okay. So I read that. I'm going to read that sentence again because it's an important one. Contemplating karma and its effects helps us to see ourselves, our experiences, and our lives as dependent on a variety of factors. They arise and cease due to causes and conditions. They are neither random nor predetermined. Both of those positions contradict conditionality. So the way the, you know, in the Christian tradition, you know, are things fated or do people have free will? It, it centers around this uh, very strong dichotomy of either things are totally predetermined and controlled or you can do whatever you want. And both of those contradict conditionality. Yeah, because conditionality means things, you know, you have some power to create the causes and conditions and things are not random but you don't have full control, okay? So this awareness of conditionality prepares us to later study the 12 links of dependent origination that describe how we are born into samsara and how to free ourselves from it, which is in the next volume, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. It also, this awareness of conditionality, prevents us from slipping into nihilism when we study and meditate on the emptiness of inherent existence. It also prevents us from slipping into the extreme of absolutism, okay, adhering to inherent existence. So the fact that people arise, that people and things arise and change due to causes and conditions assures us that they exist. Okay, so when we experience adversity, life seems unfair and we ask, why me? When we have knowledge of how the law of karma and its effects operates, we understand that we create the causes for our experiences. The mind training teachings suggest that we reflect on the karmic causes of our problems because it helps us to accept responsibility for our actions and to stop blaming others for our unhappiness. So accepting responsibility for our actions doesn't mean we blame ourselves. It just means we hold ourselves accountable. I did such an action and it created the cause for this and such a result. Recalling that we have acted destructively humbles our arrogance and leads us to change our attitudes and behavior. Okay, So you can think, you know, uh, we see many people suffering now um, because of COVID, and how different people um, react to whatever suffering they are uh, confronted with at this time. Yeah. So if you know the, the mind training teachings, then you have some power to control your mental experience, which will also influence your physical health. Yeah, If you 
uh, know the mind training teachings, but you don't practice them, then it is kind of like not even knowing them. And then you're kind of uh, at the whims of the fickle mind that is grasping at the happiness of this life. Recalling that we have acted destructively humbles our arrogance and leads us to change our attitudes and behavior. So when we do that, then we learn from our experiences. When we keep on doing the same thing again and again, expecting a different result, that's the definition of insanity, isn't it? But we do this a lot, don't we? We do the same thing again and again, and we think that the result is going to be different. Our mind stream resembles a garden with a variety of seeds planted in it. Depending on which seeds are watered, particular plants will grow at that time. The other seeds are still in the ground. They will ripen whenever the proper amount of water, fertilizer, and heat are present. Similarly, karmic seeds from numerous actions we have done in previous lives and in this life are on our mind stream. Our present thoughts and actions act like water and heat, causing specific seeds to ripen. Uh, gambling, gambling waters, gambling, oh, okay. Gambling waters the seed, <laughs> seeds of destructive karma making it easier for us to have financial problems, okay? Speaking with kindness will water seeds of virtuous karma, making it easier for them to bear their results. And in this life, we can also see, you know, the results quite directly of our actions, yeah? When you're, uh, you know working and trying to get something done and you're you're dealing with a stranger in some department or another, if you're irritated and you're mean and bossy, they're not going to go out of their way to help you. They want to get you off the phone as ASAP. If you're kind and, you know, and, and you show that to them, then they really help. So, you know, we can see it right then and there. The maturation of karma is not fatalistic. We have some ability to influence which seeds ripen. We also see that our lives are not the sum total of all actions we have ever done. Okay, so it's not that at the end of one life you add up all the karmas and then whichever one is heavier you either go to the higher realms or lower realms. It's not like that. It depends. It's really like a garden, and you have seeds of all kinds of things in in that garden, and what seeds you water are the ones that are going to ripen. Okay? We also see that our lives are not the sum total of all actions we have ever done, but depending on which karmic seeds ripen, We can go from a good situation to an unpleasant one and back again quickly. This is important, you know, when we think of uh, people who have done very negative actions in their life. You know, they are not just one action they have done. 
It's kind of like us. I mean, would you want to be just the one most horrible action you did in your life? Yeah. Can you think of, you know, like the things we've done and then, you know, that is who you are forever? Then we could really say that's not fair. (laughs) Okay? But uh, it doesn't work that way. Also, there's nobody to complain to. (laughs) That doesn't stop us from complaining, though, does it? (laughs) Yeah? We also get a sense of the incredible swirl of countless causes created in previous lives that come together to bring about just one event in our lives. The intricacy and complexity of the functioning of karma and its effects is far more than we can currently grasp. Nevertheless, learning the general and specific characteristics of karma and its results aids us in making wise decisions. So this chapter is very applicable to our lives. Once we break our leg, we cannot unbreak it although we can work skillfully with the situation to minimize the pain and we can, you know, repair the leg. But you can't unbreak it, so it's never going to be an unbroken leg again. Similarly, once karmic seeds have ripened, we cannot undo their results. You know, the, the karma that ripened in... Uh, in our hearing these wonderful teachings by Geshe Yeshi, that karma ripened, it's finished, it can't be undone. We, there's no time machine to go in the back and, and, you know, prevent that karma from ripening again. Okay. Similarly, once karmic seeds have ripened, we cannot undo their results. Understanding this, we will accept pleasant, unpleasant events in our lives rather than rail against them, and make effort to create constructive karma when dealing with difficult situations. If we give way to, to anger and the wish to retaliate against the driver of a car that rear-ended us, we will compound our misery in the present and create more destructive karma, the result of which we will have to experience in the future. However, if we remain calm and speak respectfully to the person, we avoid creating more causes for suffering. So one of our friends in in Seattle, um, one time she was in a car accident, and she could tell that the other person, I think it was his fault, but he was very upset. And she said, let's pray together while we wait for the police to come. And she prayed with him. You know, I mean, what an incredibly creative, beautiful way to deal with a car accident instead of carrying on and swearing and making the guy feel worse and so on. In short, Buddhaghosa indicates the strong role karma plays in our lives. So this is from the Visuddhimagga. Karma result proceeds from karma. Result has karma for its source. Future becoming springs from karma. And this is how the world goes around. So they say love makes the world go around. 
In Buddhism, craving makes the world go round, because craving is the first factor that ripens, that makes the karmic seeds ripen, that flows another rebirth. Okay. Questions, comments, yeah. Comment that um, I had the thought recently that, and I, of course this is a teaching that all sentient beings, none is better than another in terms of having better karma or being more virtuous because we have all these seeds in our minds. And so, you know, having ordained, I like to think, oh, I have so much virtuous karma. But actually, it's, I don't think it's very different than the bug or a, a non-ordained person. It's just the causes and conditions have come together in this life so that I could ordain. And that in the, nec in the next life, somebody else who I think right now, they have terrible karma, they could ordain mm -hmm. or they could, you know, do very yeah. wonderful things spiritually. So it's just... Yeah, it's good for arrogance, like it, it says. That yes. <laughs> we yes. all have a mixed bag. Yep. Yeah. So when some good karma ripens, we should avoid getting arrogant because we could turn around and negative karma ripens just like that. And similarly, when we're experiencing the result of destructive karma, don't get depressed, but... Uh, but see that the situation could turn around. And also see that when we face problems, many people actually come and help us. Yeah, we usually think, oh, you know, I'm sick. What negative karma comes? And, you know, I got COVID, all this negative karma is ripening. But then how much positive karma ripens you have your family that takes you to the hospital. You have all the frontline medical workers who help you. You know, you have somebody who takes you home, and then the, the home health care nurse stops in. So you're experiencing the result of negative karma, but you're also experiencing the result of incredible virtuous karma because so many people come and help you when you're having a problem. You know, but we always forget to look at that. We only look at the problem and lament, you know, what causes that, not realizing that at the same time so many good things are happening. It's like how people look at their childhood. You know, oh, my childhood was a wreck, you know, my father was a drunk and my mother was a dope addict and they both left the kids and didn't feed us and na 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 and go on and on and on about my childhood and how, how horrible it was. And at the same time, yeah, the neighbor would come, you know, your parents didn't feed you, but the neighbor recognized the situation and would come over and feed the kids. And your teachers would report it to uh, child uh, protective services. And maybe you were placed in a foster home, yeah, which you may not have liked, but boy, you know, those people cared for you and and it got you out of a difficult the difficult situation you were in. So, you know, in in the if we could see situations, you know, in a very whole whole way, we can see many kinds of karma are ripening at the same time. It's just 
something's not all negative or all positive. I'm going to share part of a conversation that I had just recently with a friend of ours who's 84. And this past June, she had a stroke. Uh, she was with her sister. She knew that something wrong was going on with her mind. So she told her sister, I'm having a stroke. The sister called the ambulance and they got her to the hospital. And I think it was a fairly big deal because she's still recuperating. But, you know, prior to the stroke, she's a Buddhist practitioner. She's a very, she was very strong physically and mentally. And we know that because at the age of 76, she was here during winter retreat painting the meditation hall. Painting the meditation hall at 76. So she said, you know, um, the biggest thing for her was realizing that she had no control. And I think this was not a very common thing for her, but it wasn't something she met with aversion. It was mm -hmm. just like, okay, I'm 84. My body is changing. I'm healing through a stroke. How fortunate I still have time to work with my mind. And she went on like this, like, yes, I'm walking with a cane, but at least I'm walking. And... She said, I'm on borrowed time. I'm on I'm 84. So whatever time I have left, it's going to be a gift. And what else did she say? Um, oh, she says, I'm, I'm really sure that when it's my time to go, I will go out laughing. <laughs> For the example of uh, karma that's not done but accumulated, um, plotting for a long time to rob someone and then deciding against it. So are you, what karma are you accumulating? The malice of the plotting? Or, yes. So even though you have not, you decided not to do, do it, it, which is virtuous. Uh, no, you're... Um, this page 284. I mean... It didn't, I don't think it said it was virtuous. I mean, it didn't say about it. Yeah, but, but you spend a long... Yeah, deciding not to do it is virtuous. But all the time you spend uh, planning it out and being filled with malice, that part's non-virtuous. Yeah, and that non-part... that The karma of the malice, I think, is going to be heavier than just the deciding not to do it. Um, and you still, you know, you still need to purify. Because it also depends on why you decided not to do it. You're planning on uh, robbing a bank, and then you decide, well, I won't do that because I may get caught. Well, that's not very a very virtuous intention. Okay? You're, you're just being practical. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the four pairs of actions from the levels of yogic deeds, mm -hmm. is it sufficient to simply, because it says actions done with this mental attitude. Mm -hmm. Is the mental attitude sufficient or does it need to come with an action of speech or body? So for instance, oh. the non-virtuous actions done with great malice um, towards uh, others or the, the lack of respect to the three jewels, does it have to be an action of speech and body or, or body? Oh, okay. Um, it could be, or it could be, you know, a mental action. Because we have the, the three uh, non-virtuous non mental actions and the corresponding three virtuous mental actions. I'm not sure if I understood you right. You were talking in response to a question about the second link 
Were you saying it can throw all four karmic results, but the throwing karma is the first? Uh, the okay, we the what we call a throwing or propelling karma is a karma that brings a rebirth. That karma is a karma also with all four parts complete, and it can bring all four results. Okay? So it usually, the way they describe it, is it produces the throwing karma first and then the other results. But I'm sure there could be some variety in that. Okay? So, you know, we have to realize that it isn't just like one action, one karma produces one result, and one result is caused by one one karma. Yeah? Sometimes it's many karmas to produce a result. Sometimes it's one karma producing many results. Also often wondered in this line if when we say that because we experience something that karma is now um, complete, whether now, that's uh, karma is now complete or burned up, we've used up this karma, ripened uh-huh. because we've finished, because mm-hmm. we've experienced this. If that's a little bit simplistic way of mm-hmm. thinking about our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be. It, it could, you know, it's it. it means that the result that was going to come at that point has finished, okay? Yeah, but it could bring other results, or maybe, depending on how we thought when we was experiencing that result, it may be prevented from ripening in another way, too. Yeah. They say karma is very, very complicated, so... I could imagine, you know, if there's a very strong karma and it ripens in a very strong way, you know, will it ripen in other ways? Ask a Buddha. (laughs) Yeah, ask a Buddha these kind of questions. Okay. Okay.